Hi, everyone. We're conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes and answer a few questions. Please visit survey.prx.org happiness to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org happiness. Thank you. The Science of Happiness is brought to you by Progressive, one of the country's leading providers of auto insurance. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you say what kind of coverage you're looking for and how much you want to pay, and Progressive will help you find options that fit within your budget. Use the Name Your Price tool and start an online quote today at Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you could wake up tomorrow having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? If you could change one thing about the way you were raised, what would it be? What is your most treasured memory? Well, what was your most terrible memory? Is that in there? Yeah. Whoa. Of all the people in your family, whose death would you find most disturbing and why? Can 36 questions really make two people fall in love? Can 36 questions help couples stay in love? If the science of happiness has taught us anything, it's that good relationships are essential to feeling satisfied with your life. And of course, romantic relationships might matter more than any other. So how do you find lasting love? You'll get all kinds of advice from magazines and talk shows, from your therapist and your best friends. But today, we're going to hear about a different technique, one that psychologists have developed in the lab. It takes about 45 minutes, requires asking 36 specific questions, and it has had almost unbelievable effects on couples who have tried it. It's even been used to help break down barriers between groups and reduce prejudice. I'm Dacher Keltner, and this is The Science of Happiness. On each episode of our podcast, we have a happiness guinea pig try out a practice designed to boost happiness, resilience, kindness, or connection. Then we explore the science behind it. Joining me today as our happiness guinea pig is Kelly Corrigan. Kelly is the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Middle Place and Lift, and now has a new book out called Tell Me More, stories about the 12 hardest things I'm learning to say. Thanks so much for being here, Kelly. Oh, it's a pleasure. So you did a practice that gives you 36 questions, and then you, you and a partner take turns asking these questions of each other. I know that the questions start out sort of more formal, and then they get more personal and intimate as you move along. What struck you about doing it? One thing that struck me is that you can be married to somebody for 16 or 17 years and still feeling incredibly awkward around them, <laughs> which means that you must be doing something new and and right. Yeah. Um, so we were all goofy and weird with each other for a couple questions. <laughs> Then the other thing is when you have a long conversation like that where yeah. there's a lot of listening and not there's no cause for debate. It's yeah. not like what should we do about should we let Georgia go to this party and then we both have opinions. It was really just you share and I'll absorb. That's very unusual in the course yeah. of a normal everyday marriage. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know how much couples really get to listen to each other each day. I mean, yeah. It, you almost have to force it. Yeah. I mean, you almost yep. have to get into something more planned. I just don't think it happens naturally. Like what was surprising? So what did you, what what caught you off guard? Or? One of my most frustrating parts of my marriage is that Edward repeats himself so much. <laughs> like so many stories. It's like low-level insulting when someone tells you something they already told you. So... It was funny because we have that thing where it's like a real thing. We've talked about it a lot. I couldn't believe how many of the 36 things I didn't know. And I thought, Edward, you have so much material that you have not shared. There was one question where we started talking about 
whose death would worry him the most. Mm. And that led us to talking about his dad, and that, and it was really moving. And we have a clip of that conversation. I mean, I really worry about if my mom dies for my dad, like what that will do to him, you know? Yeah, I mean, you I Like, he's going to be super lonely. Yeah. I just remember feeling like, like, say it. Like, yeah. whatever you want to say, you can say. Yeah. I, because how rare is it in a marriage yeah. to feel like you're hearing someone say something they have not said before? Not only to you, but to anyone. Like, to, to have that moment where you're witnessing someone discover a feeling or a fear or a hope that they haven't even articulated to themselves before. Yeah. And that's what was happening. And it was like, well, this was worth the whole thing, was just to this one moment where you're finding something in front of me. My whole thesis in life is that all people really care about is they just want to feel they've been felt. And then I think it's rare, even if they are being felt, that they feel they've been felt. Yeah. Like they don't trust it. They don't think you're really tuned in the way that you might be. And... So in that little moment of our 36 questions, I thought, you, for sure, you can feel me feeling you right now. And, yep. you know, that's like a salve. It is, you know. And, and one thing we, we know from this science is, in a way, it defines our species, that we have these feelings for other people's feelings. And there are parts of the brain that pick up other people's pain. And we feel literally the pain centers of my brain light up if I see you mm-hmm. have physical pain. And there's a lot in busy life that takes us away from fellow feeling. Were there other deeper philosophical themes you picked up in the exercise? Well, for sure we were doing things. We were operating in a way that we don't typically operate. And I think for us to feel the difference was significant because I think in the absence of doing that, we would have self-rated high on the connection and conversation spectrum. But the truth is that the kinds of conversations we typically have yeah. are a little more intellectual and a little less personal. Yeah. Nothing to do with you and your deepest feelings and what you're feeling afraid of. And so that's the other thing about creating space like this, yeah. where it's in the right context yep. to say something really lovely Yeah. without feeling... Um, I mean, we're we're kind of a jokey couple, so I just feel like if I were to say some of these things in the normal flow of the day, my gut is that Edward would be like, you know, what is wrong? Are you sick? Like, what <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why aren't you pissed off that I left all that crap on the counter? So when he, he said some nice things about me in our 36 Aww. questions, and I thought, <gasps> like, you do? You do? Aww. Like, I can't believe you. That's so great. Like... It's just like parlor games, too. You know, you get these, it's these frames where you say, all right, you get to be goofy, you get to wear a costume. Yes. And this is a kind of a a frame or an arena in which you can say some nice things. My strongest reaction to the whole experience was, boy, this is an unusual way to relate. And isn't that weird? That's really weird that... We're married. Like, this is the most important (laughs) relationship in our lives. It's like the cornerstone to everything, which we often acknowledge to one another. Like, it all starts and ends here. But that doesn't mean that we're actually, like, talking to each other and listening to each other and on this second level. I mean, it totally brings back all the super juicy, romantic, intense feelings that you have in the beginning. Yeah. Because you're actually doing what you did in the beginning, which the is discovery. getting to know someone. Yeah. 
and you think you know them. And so then you think that that's there's no discovery left. And how sad is that? I'm really curious. And it's so interesting how, you know, the structure of your book, Tell Me More, and then this exercise, 36 questions. Yeah. You know, there's this almost parallel structure to it. And what would be the three or four questions out of this that you thought are most dynamic for couples to well, I think I do. Other. I do think it's it's a good thing to tell each other what you admire about one another. Nice. Um, I just don't think we do it enough, unfortunately. And but I wouldn't ask it first because I think you'll get like the. I mean, I think there's a. <laughs> I think there's some level of like falling into a less self conscious space with one another where you might be able to say something you admire that you haven't said before. Yeah. I think like intimacy is predicated on telling somebody something that you wouldn't tell anyone else or or hmm. that you haven't told anyone else. And so any questions that get at that, like it had never occurred to me to ask Edward if he thought about death, his own death. And if someone had said, what do you think he would say? I would say, no, I don't think he thinks like that. I think I'm the one who's, you know, who traffics in those spaces. And, you know, he said, of course I do. I think about it a lot. And it was like, wow, man, tell me more. <laughs> like, I can't wait. to. You could talk for 10 minutes now. Like, get, get me in. Show me something. And there's so much intimacy in that. Like, know, it's like mm. knowing a secret. Yeah. Even though it's not a – there's nothing salacious about it. But it's just like a thing that the world would never ask you and never care to listen long enough. But I do. Yeah. I'm your special person. Like, tell me. Yeah. And then great questions in relationships – point to that space. And I love your use mm-hmm. of the word space. I think yeah. a lot of relational life is about creating the right spaces. Well, Kelly Corrigan, thank you so much for being our happiness guinea pig. Oh, uh, sure. I'm happy being your happiness guinea pig. If you want to try the 36 questions and similar practices, you can find them on our Greater Good in Action website. That's ggia.berkeley.edu. Hiring the right team for your business can be a long and arduous process. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, you can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash happiness. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash happiness. Indeed.com slash happiness. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We know from science that giving to others, especially those in need, can make us happier as a community. Unbound is an international nonprofit that partners with families living in extreme poverty, empowering them to become self-sufficient and fulfill their desired potential. When you sponsor a child, young adult, or elder through Unbound, you invest in personalized benefits that support goals chosen by the sponsored individual and their family. Unbound sends more than $100 million each year to support families in under-resourced countries. You can make a real and direct impact, offering hope, in the life of someone when they need it most. Partner with a new friend today at unbound.org happiness. They might seem goofy, but believe it or not, there's actually some science behind those 36 questions that Kelly asked her husband and answered. 
And in fact, studies have found that those questions can do more than just help your love life. They can actually help us overcome prejudices and racism. So here to help me unpack this idea is UC Berkeley psychology colleague and my dear friend, Rudy Bendosa-Denton. Rudy, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Dacker. It's good to be here. So how has this 36 questions practice, or I think in the scientific literature, it goes by fast friends? How's that been used in studies? Well, let me first begin by acknowledging that you said that it might sound goofy um, (laughs) because, you know, especially when UC Berkeley tends to be associated with, you know, love and flowers and hippies and, you know, you put, you know, (laughs) friendship and happiness in there and it just makes for this mix that, It's a Berkeley original. (laughs) It's a Berkeley original. But it turns out that it's not a Berkeley original. It originated actually in Stony Brook in the lab of Professor Art Aaron. Uh Essentially, they created a kind of format or task that could facilitate the formation of closeness. So it's a methodology that scientists have used to create friendship or closeness in the lab. Yeah, no, and it's and we're always a little bit leery to, you know, to scientifically create intimacy or closeness or trust or the like. But Oh, people really sort of what do you mean you create a friendship <laughs> in the lab? Like it sounds Frankenstein-y. So you've got these thirty six questions, you bring a couple of partners together or friends, and then what do they do? The key feature is that the questions go from something that two people might say to each other, you know, when they are just meeting or, you know, or not very close acquaintances even. Right, sitting um, next to each other on a train. Right, or, so, yeah. you know, hey, you know, what's your, what's your name? You know, what's your favorite color? The key is that the questions become more and more not intimate in any kind of sexual or romantic way, but a little, you know, just a little more about you and about things that your inner life and thoughts and attitudes and uh-huh. processes that you then, you know, think, oh, you know, I don't know that I would share that with a stranger. Again, the key is that you're sort of gradually guided into that place of human closeness. So, really, this practice, it's been associated with romantic closeness. And we had author Kelly Corrigan on talking about, you know, the really interesting emotional closeness and kindness and complexity that are brought with her husband. You've kind of developed a different way to use this 36 questions exercise in your research. I was a graduate student when I became interested in ways to think about combating prejudice and intergroup negativity, basically. And because I was in a lab that also studied romantic relationships, Mm. I had come across the research on the, what we were calling then the Fast Friends procedure. And I also noticed that the literature on cross-race friendship and prejudice reduction, it was impossible to say which direction that relationship went. Was it that less prejudiced people were more able to develop cross-race friendships, or is it that cross-race friendships, as that literature would suggest, should allow for a greater openness and a greater ability to see beyond the other person's skin color or racial or ethnic background and more into the person underneath. So I thought, hey, why not have people, you know, across groups Uh uh, do this and let's see what happens. Let's see if people become friends. So you're building friendships between people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, class backgrounds? We were specifically interested at the time in cross-race friendship as a way to reduce racial prejudice. I think the findings are generalizable, but yes, we were specifically interested in whether the fast friends procedure would quite simply work 
So what did you find in this research? So we found, first of all, that the friendship manipulation worked. And people very quickly and very strongly, both across and within racial dyads, experienced feelings of friendship and commonality, nice. just as Art Aaron would have expected. And by dyads, Dacker, I just mean couples, two people together. That was the first finding. The second finding relates to this issue of causality. Is it the case that people who are less prejudiced are more prone to have cross-race friendship, or is there something specifically about cross-race friendships that leads people to become less prejudiced? And we were able to use the fast friends paradigm to be able to specifically address this question. That is, create friendship in the lab and see whether afterwards people were, in fact, less prejudiced. And that's exactly what we showed in the study. So that was a really nice confirmation of that relationship that goes from friendship to prejudice reduction. I think this is a really significant finding because instead of saying, oh, you just have to be less prejudiced and then therefore you're more likely to develop these cross-race friendships, instead of putting it at the level of the person, it puts it at the level of the relationship so that if you develop better relationships with someone from another group, then you're more likely to have better attitudes towards that group. And this is something that had been hypothesized or written about in the literature, but it had never been really experimentally tested, and we were able to do that. You know, it makes a lot of sense because once you develop a friendship, your conception about not just that person, but about the entire group changes because it changes your stereotypes, it changes your expectations, it changes basically what you think about the other group. And there was actually a third finding that I actually find really interesting, which was non-intuitive, and that is uh, people after the first meeting, some actually experienced greater levels of stress hmm. than you would anticipate. Yeah. And I think that that's because it's very difficult to and very scary to suddenly be faced in this situation yeah. where many people don't have a lot of experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the wonderful thing was that by sessions two and three, because we did expand the procedure, Excellent. people were experiencing much less stress. And this is, we assess this through saliva, through people's hormones. And I have to share in the podcast, if I may, yeah. the absolute research highlight of my career. And, you know, this is not an exaggeration, but at the end of the study, after the, the three sessions of the Fast Friends procedure, we had people play a game of Jenga, which is simply a, a collaborative, cooperative game. And as the tower would fall, you would see these cross-race dyads that, you know, a few weeks ago had been complete strangers just laughing their Aww. heads off and being so, you know, clearly and joyfully engaged with each other. And that was really, you know, it was true cross-race friendship and really, as I said, the highlight of my career. Nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the literature, it's often you find when you bring people of different ethnic or racial backgrounds together, there's actually anxiety and tension and potential misunderstanding. So it seems like this question format is really useful. That is precisely why so many people avoid having intergroup contact in the first place because they're afraid that they're going to either be the targets of prejudice or that they're going to be themselves labeled as prejudiced, that they're going to say something wrong, stick their foot in their mouth, that it's just not kind of going to go well. So people, you know, default back to their known networks, which tend to be fairly yeah. homogenous. Yeah. So that's a key insight there. And this gets back to what I was saying earlier about the key feature of the 36 questions that helps break barriers. And that's the simple fact that it's a structured task. 
Yeah. In other words, what your job is, it's not to sort of say, hey, how about those Yankees or something, right? Yeah. But rather to read the question and to listen to the person's answer. People are at the start very reliant and very timid about their answers. Right. Right. So, you know, I don't know. A little guarded. You know, or... Exactly. A <laughs> little guarded. And then as the questions begin to evolve into more intimate type questions, people really begin to let loose and little smiles or, you know, little, you know, little shyness <laughs> signals that, that you get. And yeah. then people are laughing and sharing in that. Oh. Instead of being uncomfortable together, when you say something goofy or uncomfortable, yeah. both laugh. That's fascinating. You know, you've highlighted for us a lot of reasons, like just stepping back and thinking about why does this simple exchange of answers and questions work so much? And part of it's trust and part of it is laughter and part of it is getting to know someone and breaking the tension. But I'd never thought about this idea that this is this exercise that embodies this basic insight in the happiness literature, which doesn't come easily, which is like it's between people. Right. That's where the action is. That's right. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention why the closeness between people works in the way that it does. And it's a very specific phenomenon that's known as expansion of the self, which is that the closer that you feel to each other, either through the 36 questions or because of a long-term relationship, the more likely you are to misidentify your partner's attribute as your own. Wow. So it takes you a little <laughs> bit longer to say, no, 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 oh, that, uh, a great musician, that's that's not me, right? That's my partner, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah. there's a little bit of, uh, and it's not confusion, but rather it's an expansion of the other into the self. That's what explains why I sweat when my <laughs> partner is giving a presentation or when my partner feels good when something good happens to me as well. You know, you've really surfaced, I think, the central theme or one of the most underappreciated but critical themes in the science of happiness is where are these hypersocial relational beings, right? It has all these emotions supporting it. That's where we find happiness and health. And I love how you've brought into focus today how this 36-question this exercise is also a nice structured way to, to break down some barriers and feel close to people that seem a little different from us, came out of a different neighborhood, you know, have a different religious tradition and so forth. What's the deep lesson from the 36-question exercise? That's a great question, Dacker. And I think one of the deep insights that we can get from this literature is that you have to be very deliberate and effortful to reach out across the, you know, and we're talking here about racial divides, but it can also be like a religious divide, a class divide. Those are effortful self-interventions that are a little bit like social engineering. It's very small, yeah. but they do change the world. Rudy, I want to thank you for being on the Science of Happiness podcast. This has been an amazing conversation about friendship and hope to have you back. I hope to be back, Dacker. Thanks. So Rudy Mendoza-Denton is the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Distinguished Professor in Social Sciences here at UC Berkeley. I'm Dacker Keltner. Thanks for joining me for the Science of Happiness. In our next episode, our happiness guinea pig thought he had it all, and then he realized he had it all wrong. I realized that I am not making the choices that make me happy. And that was the moment I realized i got to stop what I'm doing and start over. Discover what he did to bring more joy and humor into his life next time on The Science of Happiness. Our podcast is a co-production of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and PRI, produced in coordination with Jenny Cataldo and Ben Manila from BMP Audio. Our producer is Jane Bach. Executive producer is Jason Marsh. Our original music is by David Michelle Ruddy. 
Funding for the Science of Happiness comes from donors to the Greater Good Science Center and from PRI donors, including Javier Escobedo and Bego Lozano. Funding for this episode of the Science of Happiness was provided by Alan Spivak. You can learn more about the Science of Happiness and find related articles, videos, quizzes, all kinds of stuff on our website, greatergood.berkeley.edu. And shoot us an email. Tell us what you think about what you heard. Send it to greater at berkeley.edu.